Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Joanna, the Queen of Sicily and Jerusalem, is more renowned than other women of our time for her ability, power and goodness. It would have seemed hateful not to speak of this woman. Yet it would have been better to remain silent and to write little about her. She has endured the internal struggles of petty fellow princes and foreign wars, which at times were waged within her kingdom. Through the fault of others, she has had to endure flight, exile, marriage, strict conduct, the envy of noblemen, undeserved ill repute, the threat of popes, and other things, all of which she has borne bravely. Finally, her indomitable soul has conquered everything. This would have been a great deed for a strong, powerful king, and not only for a woman. She has a marvellous, charming appearance. Her speech is gentle, and her eloquence pleases everyone. Just as she is majestic and inflexible when the occasion demands, she is affable, merciful, gentle, and friendly, so that one would say she is her people's companion rather than their queen. What greater qualities would one seek in a most wise king? And if someone wants to express the integrity of her character completely, his speech would be very long. For these reasons, I not only think that she is noble and of splendid fame, but an eminent glory of Italy, such as has never been before seen by any nation. Giovanna Boccaccio, Concerning Famous Women, 1362. Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.5, Joanna of Naples, Two Houses, Both Alike in Dignity. Last time we looked at the life of Marazia of the Tuscalani, the woman who rose to dominate Roman politics and created, for a time, an almost hereditary papacy in the 10th century, becoming the lover, mother, aunt, grandmother, great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother of popes. Today, we travel about 400 years forward and 140 miles south to 14th century Naples to hear about one of the most powerful female rulers of the whole Middle Ages. Joanna of Naples is one of very few queens regnant in the Middle Ages, i.e. a queen that ruled in her own right. Her time in power coincided with two of the greatest medieval crises, the Black Death and the Western Schism, And let me tell you, it was action-packed. At the start of the episode, I read out a quote from the great medieval writer Giovanni Boccaccio, who was clearly a fan. But she was a very controversial figure, 
and many would disagree with Boccaccio's assessment of her. In terms of sources for Joanna, as usual, we have a problem, in that we have a great deal of lost records. And the culprit for this is that great villain of history, the Nazis. Before the outbreak of World War II, the Italian government transferred the state archives to a sleepy villa 20 miles outside Naples, where they hoped it would be safe from Allied bombing. Fast forward four years, and a German patrol came across these documents, held in nearly 900 wooden crates, and displaying the tact and respect the Nazis generally had for the culture of others, decided to burn them. The head of the state archives at the time said, perhaps a tad melodramatically, quote, Their destruction has created an immense void in the historical sources of European civilization, a void which nothing will ever be able to fill. A huge amount was lost, and we know amongst them was an entire contemporary chronicle about Joanna's reign, records of what she ate, wore, and spent her money on, her collection of letters, I would dearly love to have read those, and the edicts that she directed. Now, some records were saved, and others have been copied into other accounts, but it is a huge loss and does leave big gaps in our knowledge, particularly for the second half of her reign. That said, though, there is a veritable wealth of sources compared to, say, Marazzia's time, so I can't complain too much. Finally, before we get started, I would like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you too would like to support me as an independent podcaster, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Just search the title of the show. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Italy at the start of the 14th century looked very different to the peninsula that we left at the death of Marozia. Remember that, while we think of Italy now as a whole, very few outside of a tiny intellectual elite would have thought of themselves as Italians in the 14th century. Instead, they would have considered themselves as Florentines, Pisans, Romans, Neapolitans. The peninsula itself had three great political entities and then dotted in amongst them were city-states like Venice and Florence, perpetually at war, whose loyalty to these other entities fluctuated according to their own self-interest. The Holy Roman Empire was a far more powerful entity than it had been during the Pornocracy, and that of course had its main base in Germany, but controlled most of northern Italy. Then there were the Papal States in the centre, and the relatively new Kingdom of Naples in the south. Named after its capital city, Naples had begun its life as a duchy within the Byzantine Empire during the 7th century, and then rose in importance after it allied with the papacy in the 9th century in its battles against the Holy Roman Empire. Back then it controlled a territory that included all of southern Italy and Sicily, though parts of this were conquered by other peoples over the years, including the Lombards and the Saracens. 
Naples became an independent duchy after allying with the papacy against the Muslim army, and was then conquered by the Normans in the early 12th century, who then named themselves the Kingdom of Sicily. Italian politics being what it was, the kingdom's loyalties fluctuated wildly, and the papacy liked to play Norman Sicily off against the Holy Roman Empire, allying with whichever seemed less likely to want to send an army to sack the Eternal City. Sicilian Normans were enthusiastic early crusaders, with one of their number, Bohemond, setting up the Principality of Antioch. However, no one trying to rule southern Italy lasted for too long, and in 1262, the French Count Charles of Anjou, the first of many Charleses in this story, after getting papal permission in exchange for 8,000 ounces of gold and one white horse, conquered the Kingdom of Sicily. This created a long-lasting partnership between Angevin Naples and the papacy, though they were unable to prevent a Spanish conquest of the island of Sicily led by Peter of Aragon 20 years later, which then split the kingdom into the separate kingdoms of Sicily and Naples. Now, as you might imagine, these two new kingdoms did not much like each other, and both dreamed of reuniting under their own respective banners, of course, but more on that later. Despite the loss of the island, the new King Charles I of Naples had quite the list of titles, as he was also Count of Anjou, Maine and Provence, as well as the Principality of Achaea in Greece, and the title of King of Jerusalem, though that was purely a paper crown, as Saladin had long since conquered the territory. His son, also called Charles because royals have no imagination, married the daughter of the King of Hungary. Remember that, it's going to be important. And then his son, Robert, known as Robert the Wise, took the throne in 1309. Through his first marriage, he had a son, who he also called, yep, Charles. This youngest Charles was given the title customarily given to the Crown Prince of Naples, which was the Duke of Calabria. Charles had a traditional sword nobility upbringing, and was charged by his father with retaking Sicily, which he failed to do, but did win great praise for his talent on the battlefield. Through his marriage with a French princess, Maria Valois, he had five children, but only two of them made it out of infancy. And both were daughters. The eldest of which is our heroine Joanna, born in 1326, followed a few years later by Maria. Unfortunately, their father would not live long to see them grow up, as only two years later he would die, leaving Joanna as the heir to the Kingdom of Naples. Not long after that, her mother joined her father in the grave, meaning that she grew up under the influence of her grandfather, King Robert, and her step-grandmother, Queen Sancha. Robert was a remarkable man, a learned king who patronised scholars and amassed a great collection of books. He had come to the throne using what can only be described as shenanigans. He had only been the third son of his father. The eldest had died young, and the second had renounced his claim, favouring a career in the church and later becoming a saint. However, the eldest brother, before dying, had married and had a son, who they named, yeah, Charles. Now, by right, this Charles should have come to the throne, not Robert, but he was only a minor when the moment of accession happened. And so, using shenanigans, 
Robert arranged for his nephew to become King of Hungary instead, leaving him open to take the more prestigious title of King of Naples, along with all the other minor things like King of Jerusalem. Notice that Hungary connection again? Good, hold that thought. Robert was not an especially pious man for the age, and had accumulated a great deal of wealth. His wife, Sancha, was his polar opposite. She was highly religious and a great patron of church causes, particularly an extreme order of nuns called the Poor Clares, who lived in Waldorf nunneries, swore of all property, and were only permitted to speak for one hour a day. So Joanna grew up in these opposing worlds, but an area that both her grandparents agreed on was in education. She was given a remarkable education for a woman of her era, and would spend every morning of her childhood in the company of her grandmother, receiving religious instruction and learning Latin through reading psalms. And then later, she would hang out with her grandfather, who gave her political instruction and also access to his library. And then in the evenings, she would have been exposed to painters, poets and musicians who flooded the court. The greatest influence on her childhood, though, was her nurse, a remarkable woman called Philippa. She had come from an extremely humble background and had become a wet nurse in the service of Robert's first wife. She was hard-working and extremely intelligent and stayed in the royal household after Robert's remarriage. She was married to a former Ethiopian slave called Raymond, who had risen from being a cook to being guard of the king's wardrobe. This marriage between the respective favourites of king and queen was seen as a reward for good service, and the two made quite the power couple. Raymond brought wealth and influence, Philippa bought political nous, and now the position of guardian to the heir of the throne. Indeed, their influence was so great that Boccaccio would later write that, quote, nothing serious, arduous, or great was accomplished unless Robert, Philippa, or Sancha approved it. We don't know a huge amount about Joanna's childhood, but we do know the most important event that happened, which occurred in the 1330s when her cousins came to town. Now, King Charles of Hungary, remember him? He had married Elizabeth, the daughter of the King of Poland, and she was a forceful and intelligent woman who gave him a number of sons, including an heir and a spare called Andrew. Charles had never accepted what he saw as the usurpation of his Neapolitan throne and constantly petitioned the papacy to have it restored. When Joanna's father died and she became the heir, the Pope, who wanted to make nice with both parties, wrote to King Robert suggesting that he marry his granddaughter to young Prince Andrew, with their future heir then uniting both claims. Problem solved, right? Well, no, not really, as there was the thorny question of which of them, Andrew or Joanna, would be the preeminent ruler when they came of age. Eventually, an intensely complex treaty was agreed upon, where Joanna, aged six, was married to her five-year-old cousin Andrew, and then her sister Maria would be married to another of Andrew's brothers. Importantly, though, it was agreed that Joanna would rule as queen, and Andrew would be king, but not a ruling one, a king consort. Well, actually, no, the language was a little ambiguous on that. And what you definitely want in international treaties that decide the destiny of crowns is ambiguity. 
Then again, more on that later. The two are married in an incredibly opulent ceremony the following year. Robert was metaphorically swinging his member around, keen to demonstrate that he was the senior king and not his nephew Charles. Naples was one of the wealthiest kingdoms in Europe and the fashion capital to boot, and its position as one of the major Mediterranean ports than that it was filled with the sights, smells and tastes of the East. All of this was on display to greet the Hungarians, as was the size of Robert's court and the number of servants and attendants. Their comparatively poor clothes and lack of affected Mediterranean sophistication meant that the Neapolitans looked down on the Hungarians, but none of this would stop the marriage from taking place. The ceremony was witnessed by every notable royal, prince or duke in Italy, along with the entire Neapolitan elite. Now can we stop for a second and imagine just what an overwhelming experience this would have been for these two young children. Neither of them could hope to possibly understand what was all going on, what all these old men and women were going on about, or why they had to wear these heavy crowns. At the ceremony's climax... Joanna and Andrew exchanged vows and kissed each other, making commitments they could hardly have been expected to understand. After it was all done and dusted, the King of Hungary departed, leaving his son, now named Duke of Calabria, in the care of the Neapolitans. Andrew would grow up around his wife, but would have no real friends in his childhood. His only companions were his servants and some barons assigned to him. Unfortunately, He was slow to learn Italian, and they spoke no Hungarian, so he naturally grew up lonely and aloof. On the other hand, Joanna had a far wider social circle, and grew quickly in social and emotional maturity, while Andrew, well, he was a loner teenage boy who thought he was special. So, you know, not ideal. It's not known what Joanna thought of her husband in their teenage years, but one suspects it would have felt like having your annoying little brother tagging along with you everywhere you went, with the added complication of, of course, they were married. Now, marriage was, of course, not officially official until it was consummated, something, of course, that was not possible while they were both minors. However, once Joanna turned 16, and the couple had still not had sex, people started to matter. The age of consent in the Middle Ages was agreed to be around 13, so they were well past the date. This was not simply a matter of romantic preference. It was a one of national security. Hungary may not have been as prestigious or wealthy as Naples, but it had a far stronger army. And if they were to decide that the Neapolitans were going against the terms of the treaty, well, things could get messy. And then, between 1342 and 43, two significant deaths occurred. The first was in Hungary, where King Charles died after a long illness. He was succeeded by Andrew's older brother, Louis, but he was still a teenager, and so real power lay in the hands of his mother, the Queen Regent, Elizabeth. Her principal goal was to ensure that her sons, Louis and Andrew, were fully entrenched as kings. For Louis, that meant marriage to a Bosnian heiress. For Andrew, it meant making sure that once Robert died, he became King of Naples. Now this was absolutely not what King Robert of Naples had wanted or stipulated in the treaty. For a start, it stated that Louis was supposed to marry Joanna's sister, Maria. 
This was not only a slap in the face diplomatically, but demonstrated that the Hungarians were treaty breakers. Robert knew that passing his crown to a woman and a granddaughter at that would be fraught with danger. And let's remember he had obtained that crown from the man who had become king of Hungary using shenanigans. The last thing he needed was to die before Joanna reached her majority. But that's exactly what happened. In January 1343, Robert became gravely ill and decided to dictate his last will and testament. In the presence of witnesses, he decreed that Joanna would be his sole successor as Queen Regnant of Naples. If she were to die without heirs, the crown would pass not to her husband and his family, but to her sister Maria and her descendants. And Andrew, not only would he not rule as king, he wouldn't even get the title. He would stay as merely Duke of Calabria. He would get a knighthood, but the will was clear. Andrew would have no role in the government. Robert also decreed that Joanna, at 17, was too young to take the reins of power just yet, an issue compounded by her sex. Typically, the age of majority was expected to be 18, but for Joanna this was extended to be 25. Until then, she would be queen, but all decisions had to be approved by a regency council led by her step-grandmother, Sancha. His final decree was that Joanna and Andrew had to consummate their marriage immediately after his death. The key to peace was the Hungarian marriage, and it had to be made official. Robert had done all he could, but one couldn't get away from the fact that the situation he left behind was highly unstable. A young woman yet to reach her majority, with a slightly shaky claim to the throne as his heir. A husband, drunk on what we might now call toxic masculinity, and a formidable mother-in-law, determined to see her little boy take his rightful place ahead of Robert's official heir. Things would not be easy for Queen Joanna I of Naples. To secure her position on the throne, Joanna needed the support of the papacy, and that wouldn't be easy to achieve. To explain why, we need to move away from Naples to the papal court, which was not, as you might expect, in Rome. It wasn't even in Italy. Two decades before Joanna was born, Pope Clement V, best known for being the Pope that brutally suppressed the Knights Templar, moved the papal capital to the French city of Avignon. Roman politics had always been a blood sport, but mass riots and corruption had reached such a tenor that it was no longer possible for the Pope to stay. It has been called a Babylonian captivity in Avignon, but actually it was nothing of the sort. Clement was French, and had only been elected Pope thanks to pressure from Philip the Fair of France, so he was all too willing to move his base to French territory. This was not a schism. There was no alternative Pope in Rome. It was just a change of scene, but a seismic one at that. Rome had been the capital of Western Christendom since the days of St. Peter. It had withstood brutal repressions, the fall of the Western Empire, numerous sackings and humiliations at the hands of German emperors. But now it had up sticks and moved to Provence. That conjures up beautiful sights and smells these days. 
But Avignon was not a great place to be at the time. The poet Petrarch called it, quote, a disgusting city, a sewer where all the filth of the earth is collected. Just because they were no longer based in Italy didn't mean that popes no longer took an interest in the affairs of the peninsula. They were, after all, still rulers of the papal states and depended on these lands for their income. This meant that the fundamental power structures in Italy still remained largely in place. There were the forces loyal to the German emperor, also called the Ghibellines, and those loyal to the papacy, which were called the Guelphs. Naples, based in the south, was the most powerful Guelph faction, so you might expect them always to get their way with the Pope. But of course, things are never that simple. Traditionally, the Pope formally invested Neapolitan monarchs, so Joanna, on her accession, sent one of her most trusted advisers to Avignon to obtain that right, and she also instructed him to ignore the terms of her grandfather's will and ask the then-Pope, Clement VI, to give her husband the title of King of Naples. Wow, bet you weren't expecting that! Now this wasn't some sort of feat of altruism. She wasn't about to give up any of her power. She was only willing to give her husband the paper title of King of Naples, but it would at least give him that title of King, and she hoped that it would be enough to keep him happy and compliant, and most importantly, stave off the threat of a Hungarian invasion. However, hers was not the only embassy headed to Avignon from Naples. The late King Robert had been cursed with many younger brothers, and there are two that are important. The first of these is Philip, who became Prince of Taranto and led many of Robert's wars in Sicily. He married twice and had a bunch of kids, the most of whom Louis of Taranto will come back to later. The other important brother was the youngest, the Duke of Durazzo, who married a French noblewoman called Agnes and had three sons, the most important of which was called, yeah, Charles. Because, as we've seen, everyone's called Charles. He succeeded his father as Duke of Durazzo several years before Joanna became queen, and he had always harboured ambitions of seeking the throne, ambitions nurtured by his mother. Now, Remember Joanna's sister Maria? If you recall, she was supposed to marry the King of Hungary, but he had gone and married a Bosnian, and Robert had gotten so frustrated that he now was planning to marry her off to a French prince. The thing is that Maria was now arguably the most eligible bachelorette in all of Europe, as she had inherited quite a bit of land and was the heir to the Kingdom of Naples. And so anyone who married her was in prime position should... You know, anything untoward and unexpectedly violent happened to Joanna. So Agnes and Charles came up with a great ruse. Why not marry Charles to Maria? Now this argument carried a lot of weight. Agnes had a brother, who was a cardinal in Avignon, called, pleasingly for students of 19th century diplomacy, Talleyrand. She was also very close to the Dowager Queen Sancha, who was no fan of the French match, and Maria herself was also in favour of it. She had no particular desire to leave her homeland and live in some other country. Together, they put pressure on Joanna to come round to their way of thinking, and she was inclined to agree, as she was close to both her grandmother and sister. She went along with it then, but she must have known that it would enrage both Hungarian in-laws 
and her French aunt Catherine, mother of her cousin Louis of Taranto, who would surely see it as a slap in the face against her homeland. If Joanna had been a little older and a little wiser, she might have seen just what a bad decision allowing this marriage to happen was. But remember, she was young, and this whole thing had been presented to her by the head of her Regency Council. She may not have had much choice. So, the whole thing was presented to Pope Clement VI as a complete package for him to sign, which he did after a hefty bribe by Cardinal Talleyrand. The reaction was immediate, with the Tarantos immediately protesting to the Pope. But wily old Agnes and her son were one step ahead. Now, the sources disagree on what happened next. Some say that Charles kidnapped his fiancée, forced her into a secret marriage, and then immediately consummated it before anyone knew what was going on. Others say that Maria was a willing participant in all of this. Whichever it was, this escalated the crisis considerably. Joanna was furious. They had not sought permission to have the wedding day, and this was an open challenge to her authority as queen, and she wouldn't stand for it. She denounced both her sister and her new husband denied them her dowry, and wrote to the Pope asking him to annul the marriage. If she was angry, then the Tarantos were livid. Louis got together some of his mates and a few hundred retainers, and raided Charles's lands and laid siege to his castles. Naples was on the brink of a full-blown civil war. Soon, Pope Clement's intrigue was flooded with letters from both sides, and he didn't like that one bit. Clement was an easygoing man, fond of big bribes, fancy dinners and beautiful women. He just wanted everyone to get along. He rebuked Charles and Maria for their actions, telling them, quote, The marriage did please us, but it would please us more but for these sinister occurrences. But he then wrote to Joanna, and took a rather condescending tone in his urge for her to forgive them. He wrote, quote, You as her only sister nourished and educated beneath the same roof, should palliate these things so imprudently done, and guide her back to the path of honour and favour, for which reason it behoves you almost maternally to take consideration for them. They, on their part, to hold themselves loyally and reverently toward you, thereby the entire royal house may prosper at the commencement of your reign in the unity of concord." Eventually, Joanna's hand was forced when Maria announced that she was pregnant. This left her with no choice but to recognise the marriage and affirm Maria as her heir. She then had to throw good money after bad, paying off the Tarantos and her sister's dowry as well. This whole shoddy episode was not without value for Joanna. She learned that she could not trust her elders. She was forced to still deal with her grandmother but never again would she trust her political antennae. And before long, Sancho retired to a convent, leaving the political arena. She also shunned the Durazzos. They may have outmaneuvered her and got their way, but she would not give them any access to power if she could help it. This meant that she needed new advisers, so she promoted people that she could trust. This included the sons of her nurse Philippa and an uncle, Charles of Artois. These men owed their position to her alone, and she would need their advice quick, as no sooner had the Durazzo crisis ended than another approached the head of a royal army, led by her mother-in-law. Elizabeth of Hungary 
was frustrated at how long it was taking for her son to be named king, and had come along with a few hundred of her best-armed friends and quite a bit of cash to see if she could, you know, grease the wheels a little bit. She was initially greeted by her son, who rode out to meet her like the good little boy that he was. Joanna, however, didn't join them, and she waited until they came to her, and she did so in full royal regalia, crown and all. You couldn't miss the symbolism. She was welcoming a foreign dignitary, not a family member. Her relationship with Andrew, which had never been close, had only worsened as the years had passed. They lived apart, went to different churches, and hang out with different people. There is very little evidence that they even slept under the same roof, and almost certainly not together, aside from the contractually obliged time after her grandfather's death. Andrew was given no responsibilities, kept to a very strict allowance, and had to ask Joanna for everything. This all seems rather mean, but it's important to remember that, one, he was 15 and couldn't be trusted with anything, two, there's no actual evidence he objected to the arrangement, and three, this was par for the course for consorts all over Europe, albeit these were nearly always women. This wouldn't do, though, for Elizabeth, and she set about spending the whole summer pepping her sum up and lecturing her daughter-in-law. Wouldn't it be better to have someone to share the burden of power with? What about those manly jobs that only a man could do? Surely her subjects would want to see a partnership in power, not sole authority exercised by a woman. Joanna's strategy seems to have been to do nothing. Just let Elizabeth talk and talk and pretend to look interested. This didn't fool Elizabeth though, and so she set about trying to find people to bribe. And the papal court in Avignon was usually the most receptive to illicit gold. However, she didn't entirely get her own way on this one. Frustrated at the avalanche of letters and embassies about Naples, Pope Clement decided that delegation was the better part of leadership, and so set a legate south to try and deal with the problem. The prospect of her authority in Naples being undermined by a papal legate was intolerable to Joanna, and she protested furiously, but to no avail. In a papal bull, Clement announced that he was dissolving Joanna's Regency Council and removing Joanna's authority as queen, passing it to his legate, Cardinal Emmerich de Châtelieu. His reasoning was, quote, The age of the queen rendering her still incapable of governing, since the temperament of children is inconstant and easily influenced. With this patronising sweep of the quill, Naples was thrown into crisis. Clement and the Hungarians clearly thought that they were dealing with an imprudent and obstinate teenage girl, and that they, as experienced men and women of the world, knew what was best for her. They quickly found that they had sorely underestimated Joanna. She looked around for allies, and found them, unexpectedly perhaps, in the Durazzos. By now, she had reconciled with her sister Maria, and found common cause with her husband's family, if she had not actually forgiven them. The reason for this was that key papal power broker, Cardinal Talleyrand. One of his rivals was close to the Hungarians, and so he was easily persuaded to join Team Joanna on this one. While Talleyrand got to work in Avignon, Joanna kept up her letter-writing campaign, 
arguing in letter after letter that she was the rightful queen and had the right to make her own decisions. She wrote, quote, We affectionately ask of you to prevent the dispatch of your legate by whatever means you deem necessary. Your holiness will deign to call to mind my steadfast and immutable purpose, not to make my administration to my revered lord and husband. This campaign worked, and the Pope relented somewhat. He bestowed the title of king on Andrew, but he did not give him power within the kingdom. Indeed, he went further to resolve the matter, saying that Joanna ruled Tanquam via Aegis, as if she were a man. The legate, though, would still be coming. Knowing that this would be a bit of a blow to Andrew, he tried to soften it slightly by throwing him some religious favours, like being able to carry his own portable altar, the ability to celebrate mass before dawn, and being allowed to eat meat on feast days. While these were nice perks, they were no compensation for being a proper king, and the news hit Elizabeth particularly hard. She had been outmaneuvered by her teenage daughter-in-law, and there wasn't much she could now do that the papal bull had been promulgated. She was also experiencing threats to her safety. The Neapolitans were furious at this attempted usurpation of their queen's authority by this foreigner, not to mention the fact that, thanks to her, they were about to have to pay for this papal legate, and such men were always very costly to have around. Elizabeth made plans to leave, and take Andrew with her, but was persuaded from doing so by Joanna, knowing that if he were allowed to leave, he could well return at the head of a large Hungarian army. So Elizabeth left, on ships paid for by Joanna no less, just to make sure she did go, leaving her son behind. Cardinal Châtelieu, the papal legate, arrived two months later. Joanna had worked tirelessly to delay his arrival, and to try and set terms on how long he would be there, but without success. The Pope's aim in all of this was to settle the Neapolitan question, to find a solution that would keep Joanna and the Hungarians happy. He would need his legate to be tactful and respectful, as he was essentially taking power away from a ruling queen. But in Châtelieu, the Pope could hardly have appointed anyone less suited to the task in hand. He was indecisive, unimaginative and totally inflexible. To give an example, Joanna wanted to get the odious task of pledging her vassalage to the Pope over and done with, but the Cardinal refused because he hadn't yet done the paperwork. And then, when that was finally done, he insisted on it being in front of the whole court and then not made officially official until yet more paperwork had shuttled its way between Naples and Avignon. This all left a power vacuum, and Andrew, for pretty much the only time in his life, stepped up to the plate and did something decisive. Languishing in the Neapolitan dungeons were the Pipini brothers. They were three scions of a noble family aligned with the Hungarian faction at court, and were nicknamed the Scourge of Apulia. They had gained this moniker after rampaging through the kingdom killing, raping and burning everything in their path. They had been captured and sentenced to death, but that had then been commuted to life imprisonment. The brothers were violent, unstable and a threat to the kingdom, but they did have friends in high places, including Avignon. Joanna had come under a lot of pressure to release them, but had steadfastly refused, even after the Pope intervened. 
Not only were the Papinis feared, but many nobles had received land stripped from the brothers after their conviction. If they were released, then that land's ownership would come into question. Sensing an opportunity to get some well-armed thugs on his side, Andrew released the brothers and knighted them. In her biography of Joanna, Nancy Goldstone summed it up by saying, If he had let Genghis Khan out of prison and knighted him, Andrew could not have caused greater controversy. The always delicate balance of power between the various Neapolitan court factions disappeared completely. The Papinis lauded their freedom over everyone, holding jousts and living in an ostentatious luxury, even trying to show up the royal family. Their enemies fought back, and so the whole kingdom, which was already in economic difficulty due to crop failures and the cost of maintaining the papal legate, descended into violence. This was only then worsened when Cardinal Châtelieu permanently dissolved the Regency Council. Neapolitans were enraged by some foreigner coming in and then upending their entire political system, and soon complaints flooded into both his entree and that of Pope Clement. Now this was exactly the opposite of what the Pope had wanted. His legate was supposed to solve the Neapolitan problem, not create new ones. Sensing an opportunity, Joanna then hit the Pope where it hurt most, his wallet. As Naples was a papal fiefdom, she was required to send him an annual tribute of 7,000 gold florins, but now she refused to pay, on the very valid grounds that she was no longer in possession of her kingdom. She also instructed her allies in Avignon to keep up the pressure, and so finally, in November 1344, the Pope, heroically, gave up. He announced that Joanna had shown appropriate humility and learned much from his legate's instruction, which, you know, yeah, right. And so his presence was no longer required. Châteloup was recalled to Avignon, leaving 18-year-old Joanna for the first time in charge of the kingdom on her own. But there was still the question of her husband. He now had a growing base of power, and should he be crowned king, could become uncontrollable. So she instructed her allies in Avignon to persuade the Pope to withdraw his demand that Andrew be crowned, news that quickly made its way back to her husband. She also spent lavishly developing her own power base, making sure that her allies at home were ready and on her side. By now, relations between husband and wife had utterly broken down, and there were rumours that Joanna was engaging in an extramarital affairs, including with one of her nurse's sons. This is highly disputed, but provided her enemies with further ammunition with which to tarnish her reputation. All of this earned a rebuke from the Pope, who was also concerned that Joanna's generosity to her allies might hit church revenues. He struck down all gifts of land made by Joanna and banned her from socialising with any men she was accused of sleeping with. That seems, as it was under pain of excommunication, to have finally brought Joanna to the conclusion that it was better to keep her husband close than alienate him fully. And so, for the first time in years, they started sleeping together again. And not long after, she became pregnant. Now, usually, the promise of an heir can be an instrument of stability, but not here. Duke Charles of Durazzo 
had pinned all his hopes on inheriting the kingdom through his wife and Joanna's sister, Maria. But this baby would supersede him and strengthen Andrew and the Hungarian faction. Interestingly, this led him to turn on Joanna and ally with Andrew. Joanna, she had never trusted him with any power at court, despite being allies on the matter at hand. So Charles hoped that teaming up with Andrew would be his route to greater influence. Elizabeth of Hungary did her bit, writing to the Pope, saying that it would be unseemly for the father of the heir to the throne to be of a lower rank than the mother. Andrew must be crowned immediately and have an equal say in the running of the kingdom as his wife. And of course she enclosed an envelope full of cash, just to sweeten the deal. Persuaded by this bribe, the Pope wrote to Joanna, rebuking her for her tardiness on crowning Andrew, and insisting that it happen at once. By now, Joanna had had enough of papal instructions, and so decided to ignore him completely. Instead, she built her power base even further, keeping her allies sweet in preparation for what she must have feared would be civil war. Those opposed to Andrew and his faction knew that they had to act fast to forestall the coronation. On the 15th of September, 1345, the six months pregnant Joanna, Andrew and the whole court travelled to Aversa, 15 miles from Naples. While she spent the day attending to business of state, Andrew had a nice time out and about, watching dancing and having a go himself. After dinner with his wife, they retired to their separate beds. Joanna went to sleep, but Andrew stayed up late and was on his own when he was disturbed by a knock at the door. It was a courier who said that he had papers that needed his immediate attention. Andrew followed him into the gallery, which separated his room from that of his wife, whereupon a group of armed men set upon him. There was a brief struggle, but Andrew didn't stand a chance. He was restrained by iron gauntlets, and a rope was tied around his neck. He was then hung over the side of a balcony, with assailants below pulling on his legs to ensure his death. They pulled with such force that Andrew's lifeless corpse fell, waking one of his servants, whose screams raised the alarm and prevented the murderers from hiding the body. But before the guards could arrive, the assailants escaped into the night. Joanna was awoken by her ladies-in-waiting to inform her that she was now a widow. But did she know anything about this? Was she responsible? Well, I'm afraid you'll have to wait till next time to find out. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.